Hi, welcome to Timely Issues, the podcast. Thank you everyone for agreeing to use some of your very precious time to participate in this uh, program. Uh, as Romley said, this is uh, We Deserve Better, Rip It Up and Start Over. This is a conversation that I have had in private with any number of people over the years, um, perhaps with some of you uh, who are listening today. And finally, several weeks ago, uh, my wife said to me in, in some exasperation, why don't you just do a program on this? You, you've talked about it long enough. You've uh, banged on about these issues. Um, talk about it to a group of people and see what you can do. So the, the purpose of this program, unlike other presentations that I've given in the past, which are, uh, I think the expression would be tactical or uh, strategic, this is much broader than that. What I hope to do is I hope to cover some very broad uh, topics within long-term care and um, focus on uh, the current situation, just a little bit about how we got here, but talk about the components of long-term care, structures, programs, technology and information, uh, means of production, which is the human resources, the how do we get long-term care done, um, as well as the culture, outcomes, and uh, economics. I have to set my timer here. Um, so the timing of this really couldn't be more propitious. Just last week, uh, or maybe it was earlier this week, The Economist published uh, an article about uh, how the pandemic has, showing, has shown the ugly side of long-term care, a disproportionate number of illness and injury have occurred inside of congregate long-term care uh, uh, operations, both in the UK and the US, and even home care and other types of long-term care have been shown to be uh, places where consumers, patients, individuals are at risk. So this is an extremely timely topic and one that's being discussed uh, in different ways in different places. But my hope is to take a broad view and to deconstruct the sector and frankly, to start a dialogue. I don't necessarily have any answers. I don't have any solutions, uh, but these ideas have been circulating, rattling around for some time. I don't think I'm going to talk about anything that's fundamentally or profoundly new, but I do believe that we are in a position to start a dialogue which can have significant change. And the situation currently is nothing short of a crisis. And a crisis is defined as an event with an adverse impact on um, the organization, customers, consumers, employees, and, and the brand. The brand long-term care is under siege right now. And we have to 
we have an obligation to undertake a serious assessment of how the public sees us, whether we are fulfilling the trust that families and the public place in us for the fulfillment of care, nurturance, and socialization for uh, the most, some of the most vulnerable people in our society. So uh, I was attracted to this quote uh, by Margaret Mead, uh, a small group of thoughtful, committed people can change the world. Uh, that's the only thing that ever has changed the world. So my hope is that that's who we are, a group of thoughtful and committed people who have a real interest in this very complex array of services called long-term care. And I'm at the point where I think we just need to rip it up. I think that this current system that we have is so complicated. It's such a patchwork quilt of discoordinated, inefficient, and too often ineffective services um, that it serves very few people. Only those who are fortunate enough, uh, well-informed enough to arrive at a place where a helpful person navigates them through, only those people really benefit from all of what's available. So this is my arbitrary, completely arbitrary deconstruction of the long-term care. Um, I wanna go over structures and by that I mean property, plant and equipment, the original PPE. So in every budget, there's a budget line for property, plant and equipment. I wanna look at the property, plant and equipment as it affects, as it relates to long-term care. I wanna talk about programs, that's the soft side of long-term care, uh, what the intentions are, what the structures are, the structures of fulfillment, uh, who gets what and why, how are those programs organized? Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. Technology and information, which is critical to success going forward in virtually any endeavor uh, in the 21st century. Uh, I wanna talk about the means of production, uh, an econometric term, which in this case is people. So the people are the means of production in long-term care, despite what you read about cute stories about Japanese robots. Uh, we wanna talk about the culture of long-term care, outcomes, and finally, the economics. Most conversations about change in long-term care start with economics. And I think that's just a terrible mistake. Uh, I, we should first design what we want and then determine what the uh, way forward is uh, in terms of economics, in terms of fiscal, and in terms of policy. So in terms of the structure, and I will be focusing uh, in this program for the most part on the United States. Uh, I'm doing a program next week on August 6th called Faulty Towers. Uh, if you haven't seen the Britcom with John Cleese, Faulty Towers, I commend it to you. It's very funny. And it's uh, funny in a painful sort of way because it strikes very close to home about many of the things about long-term care that are uh, wrong. So um, 
about the structure, I want to focus on uh, the long-term care. So the original PPE. So most nursing homes in the United States were built between uh, 1960 and 1975. Uh, this was part of what was referred to what was called the Hill-Burton Act, uh, which made uh, guaranteed capital available to build uh, hospitals in rural America. It was an enormously successful uh, program. Uh, Hilburton hospitals are dotted all over the United States, some of which have been converted into long-term care centers, others into primary care centers. But this program really made healthcare available throughout uh, rural America. 70% uh, of the hospitals in the United States are 70 beds or less. Very few people understand that. But most of the attention, of course, is focused on the larger hospitals. But in fact, most of the care, much of the care, is delivered in small centers. Nursing homes in the United States were modeled on hospitals. And many of them were built along the same models, which is why they have uh, cinder block walls, why they have hallways with nurses stations, why they look like hospitals that were built between 1960 and 1975. Then along came assisted living, which in the late 80s and early 90s uh, offered a much more attractive model, a structural model for families and consumers looking for uh, long-term care for whatever reason, primarily need-driven. But assisted living offered a much more physically attractive model, structural model, to many markets. And indeed, assisted living uh, has uh, proliferated throughout the United States. And we'll talk a little bit about that and what the impacts of that have been. Uh, since then, since the 1960s, 1975, with the exception of assisted living, there's been little or no reinvestment in the physical structures of nursing centers, congregate care nursing centers in the United States. The capitalization model in the sector, remember there's 15 plus thousand of these nursing centers around the United States. The capitalization has been fundamentally extractive. And we'll talk a little bit about that when we get to the financing uh, matters, but capital that's been created based on the property, the value of the property, the value of the betterment, the building on the property, the capitalization has been extractive. The money hasn't necessarily gone back into the buildings. It has in some cases, but far too much of the money has been removed or extracted for other purposes. Also, it's important to note that when Hilburton came along and nursing homes began to proliferate, Medicare supported, paid for some parts of long-term care. It has long since, Medicare has long since left the playing field and now provides only about 10 to 12% of the payments for consumers in nursing centers in the United States. And these are primarily short-stay uh, rehabilitation consumers, as many of you in the business understand. And this gets to the heart of one of the uh, financial flaws, one of the weaknesses in the long-term care model in the United States. 
um, the difference between uh, Medicaid funding, uh, means tested that's uh, supported by both the state and the federal government and Medicare funding. I'll talk a little bit about that when we get to the economics and what's wrong with that model. The result, what we have now is basically yuck. Um, I've been, I've personally been in about 1,700 nursing homes around the United States, give or take 100 or so. Um, and I have to tell you that the vast majority of them are not places that I would want to stay. And the model that I often ask people is, would you stay at a Hilton or a Marriott that hadn't been renovated, significantly updated, upgraded in 40 or 50 years? Of course you wouldn't. Um, well, this is where we have basically relegated the oldest, poorest, and most vulnerable individuals in our society. So what do we need? What, what do we need? So I've deconstructed the property, plant, and equipment, and have painted the picture based on how I see it. And I know there's exceptions to the rule, but I'm saying on average, it's pretty grim. So what do we need? Well, first of all, we need a wide array. We have basically created, we created back in the 60s to 70s, we created this cookie cutter model. And in fact, assisted living followed closely in nursing homes footsteps, I would argue, and created a cookie cutter so that uh, what one assisted living residence in, uh, in Massachusetts looks very similar to another assisted living residence in Southern California. So but what we need is we need a wide array of property, plant, and equipment. We need um, large places like newer college dormitories that have extremely attractive common spaces. Uh, I've been watching with a great deal of interest the, um, the, the war between colleges and universities of building nicer and nicer student dormitories uh, and student union buildings. This has been an arms race between colleges and an attempt to make uh, Georgia Tech more attractive than uh, the University of Virginia uh, and millions, hundreds of millions, if not billions in the small billions have been spent building this infrastructure, which is probably going to be used with great uh, caution in the near future. But for seniors housing, we need large uh, we need large properties because some people want large properties, large spaces. We also need medium size like ALs in suburban areas. The average assisted living residence in the United States has 70 units. Uh, they look, uh, you can spot them. Uh, if you've looked at as many as I have, you can spot them from the side of the road. And we also need small places like McMansions for small groups of related and unrelated uh, individuals. Think of a naturally occurring uh, retirement communities, um, as well as just think of the Golden Girls. That's the model. There was a famous uh, New York Times, uh, I believe it was the New York Times article about this shift in the physical environment, the physical structure for um, aging aging in place is the, is the term. So in 
seniors housing, the supply studies have used benchmarking as a model to determine what the physical plant and the fixtures and the infrastructure features should be like. In other words, benchmarking is a process where uh, we look at a marketplace area uh, and we say, what is currently in that marketplace area? What supply is there? What are they offering at what price point? And we being the party that's interested in developing a property in that marketplace area, we say, okay, we, here's what we need to do in order to compete. Well, that's a benchmarking approach rather than a qualitative or quantitative approach to say, what do the consumers in that marketplace area want? What do they need? What would they like? What would differentiate us from the competitors? So rather than anticipating, we should be expecting. In other words, rather than saying, maybe I misspoke, rather than saying, this is what everybody else has done in the past, we should be looking forward and saying, how can we insert something into this marketplace area that will meet some demand now, but will really fulfill on a latent demand going forward? So, and, and I say here that what can the investors extract versus what they can contribute? Too often, the question I get when retained to do a market study is we want the highest and best value. In other words, they want to see what they can get out of the marketplace rather than looking forward and saying, what are the values? Uh, how can we brand our building around values? And I hope to explore that further in another webinar. I'm very interested in values branding versus performance branding, but that's a subject for another conversation. What do we need? We need telecommunications and inform information infrastructure the, and access to capital. I will talk more about telecommunications and information infrastructure, but basically long-term care is the land that modern telecommunications left behind. It's just, it's, it's a, should be a national embarrassment, um, almost bordering on a disgrace that billions, billions with a B, have been spent on health information technology for hospitals and doctor's offices, and precious little has been spent. Nothing, practically nothing, has been spent in long-term care. It's just, uh, it's wrong, and it needs to be changed. And while I may not have the answers, I know it needs to be changed, and I've got some suggestions about how we can begin the conversation. And then access to capital, which I will talk about when we talk about the economics. That's what we need to fix, to, to begin to fix the structural problems, the property plant and equipment problems in long-term care. And I would just leave this particular topic by saying, who on earth wants to go and spend two to four years living in a nursing home? Most of us do not. Okay, why don't we get what we need? Well, first of all, uh, access to capital. I talked about needing uh, about, about the Hill-Burton Act. We need a new federal Hill-Burton Act that makes 
uh, capital available to investors who are willing to make a commitment to a marketplace area for some uh, durable period of time. Uh, the market has been too busy eating each other's lunch. Assisted living competes with nursing. Nursing competes with uh, the Alzheimer's uh, centers. Uh, we've been too busy whining, complaining about Medicaid won't pay for this. Medicaid won't reimburse us what we need. Uh, uh, personal care aids are so I just forgive me, but I can't stand the whining. Um, we either have a program, we have a reason for bringing issues to government, we have reason for bringing issues to policymakers, we either recruit the academics and legitimate studies that prove our points, or just please don't whine. Um, I, it's an issue. And it pays to confuse the consumer. One of the issues at the core of why long-term care is such a mess in the United States is that we have not educated consumers about long-term care in the United States. And I would say in the UK as well, although in the UK there are some uh, advantages that we don't have here, but we'll talk about that next week. It pays to confuse the consumer. It pays to, we pit home care, private home care against private assisted living. We pit uh, memory care properties against nursing centers. We do it all the time. And what that does is it confuses our publics so that they don't understand uh, what their legitimate choices are in the marketplace. Um, and this brings me to a question that has rattled around for some time inside of my head, and I've read a little bit about it, although not enough. I don't understand why providers don't bargain with state and federal agencies together. The, the, uh, eight, the organizations, the membership groups in the sector have been asleep at the switch. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, I have great respect for the American College of Healthcare, uh, American, the uh, leading age, the American College of Healthcare administrators. I have great respect for all of those leaders. But I don't understand why there's no effective negotiation between providers and state governments and between providers as groups like unions, providers and the federal government. Certain of the programs that, we're, that we need can only be accomplished through federal uh, effort. And why we aren't pushing for this is, I think, a, uh, a lack of leadership, frankly, and a lack of bold visioning, uh, which only appears from time to time. We'll talk a little bit about that. And finally, we don't get what we need in the physical property and plant because we have bought into this opco propco thing. We've bought into the idea of separating the land, the physical plant, the land and the betterments from the finance. <clears throat> I don't understand, I understand the role of REITs. Uh, the real estate investment trusts are an animal of the Internal Revenue Service Code. 
and it allows investors to extract a reasonable, um, manageable uh, um, income from investments in the real estate. I just don't understand their legitimate role in long-term care. In the property, plant, and equipment, they are they have proven to be uh, a very uh, unappealing bargain going down the road. Uh, I was active in long-term care. I've been active in long-term care since 1985. Uh, I remember what happened following the Balanced Budget Act, the BBA 97, and how many of the operators of long-term care uh, were in receivership, effectively in receivership, and they got saved that time. They're not going to get saved this time. Uh, REITs uh, are uh, an animal of the uh, investment world, and I don't know uh, that they have been properly engaged in the creation and management of capital needed to build uh, effective structures in long-term care. So now I'd like to switch over to programs, the soft side of long-term care. And it, it, I just don't understand. I understand why things are so complicated. Um, I don't know that they need to be this complicated. So programs basically have a couple of buckets. One of them is where you are, where the consumer is, or where the provider is. And the other is what the need is. So there's both location-based or geography-based and need-based. Um, and some of these are located in the community, uh, the uh, agencies for uh, services in the communities, the area agencies on aging. Um, some of these are home-based, um, home care, home health care. Uh, Home and community-based services, which are all different, uh, receive their funding through different uh, channels. Uh, there's congregate care um, versus domiciliary or home-based care, and then there's nursing care. The complexity of this is overwhelming. Uh, I receive calls on a regular basis from friends and family who know that I'm in the business saying, we don't understand. And there's a point at which I don't either. And I've been doing this for a long time. So how did it get this complicated? It got this complicated because we were busy uh, trying to control gaming of the system. And we lost touch with who is at the center of the system, the consumer at the center of the system, and the family trying to do what's right for the consumers. So what do we need? First of all, we need screening and triage. We need objective evidence-based criteria to guide decisions about the location and the type of services that consumers uh, should receive and for which they will qualify. What I mean by that is fit the person to the program and not the program to the person. We have perverse incentives in the current system that forced force providers to compete with each other. And we need clear choices. Credit default swaps are simpler than the choices that families have with regards to long-term care. These should be three basic operating principles for long-term care going forward that would sweep away 
much of the enormous complexity in the system today. Technology and information. Uh, what is the status of technology in the sector? Well, there is no one status of technology in the sector. It's a mess. Um, the technology that is available has been adaptive, attempting to uh, create reports and records that fulfill regulation. Well, I got to tell you, that's backwards. That shouldn't be the way technology and information flow works in the system. 60 to 80% of every budget in every operating congregate operating center and even more in home health agencies is staff, is the means of production. Does the technology render the staff more efficient? In many, many cases, it does not. Um, and the tragedy of this is that subsidies have been flowing for health information technologies in the healthcare and medical realms, but only a few drops have reached the long-term care sector. It should be an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment in, in the case where the uh, operations are, are not efficient and don't meet the needs of the consumers. It's an embarrassment when families can't get answers about the status of their family member when they can't get into the building, that's a technology and information flaw. And my bottom line here is that we as a country should be just mortified that Kroger's knows where all of its tomatoes are, but we don't know where Maria or Joao are in order to take care of Mrs. Stackpole, my mother, in a long-term care center. It's just it's outrageous. What do we need? Well, we need to make the choice really clear. Are we going to take care of our tomatoes better than we're going to take care of granny? Now, there is this legacy of personal emergency response systems. And for a long time, you know the ones I'm talking about, the Lifeline, et cetera. For a long time, these were legacy systems that were hospital-based because they were built on old communications infrastructure. Uh, what we need is we need an internet of long-term care. We need electronic, real electronic health records and not software packages that are designed only to produce reports that fulfill on a specific financial uh, federal uh, reporting or state-based reporting requirement. We need interoperability. And we need something that looks like ambient assisted living. The term refers to supports for individuals who live in congregate environments and who are nevertheless have varied needs um, and varied uh, uh, requirements. I'm not a technologically sophisticated person, but this the lack of technology in the sector drove me in 2014 to look into creating a very simple system using existing technology. And wouldn't you know um, that I've discovered that there was nothing available technologically, information systems-based that could be put into a congregate care building, whether it was a nursing home or an assisted living residence that could track where people are vis-a-vis 
the consumers, the residents, the, the people we're caring for. There was no system. So I put something together and wouldn't you know, I just got a patent um, because nobody else has done this and nobody else has done this. I'm going to make this suggestion. Nobody else has done this because we as a sector haven't demanded it. We haven't demanded it of the technology companies, the big technology companies and say, how come you can track these things for Kroger, but you can't track them in a long-term care center. As you can tell, I become a little animated about these topics. It's just mind boggling. So let's go to the people. The Economist article that I referenced at the beginning uh, talks about who cares. That was the subtitle in the article. There are both non-paid and paid caregivers. Uh, I would offer the challenge, who wants to work in long-term care? There's lots of research to show that most people don't want to work in long-term care. Uh, my company did a research project years ago for the Massachusetts Medical Society. We surveyed over 6,000 doctors, and quite accidentally, we were asking a different set of questions, but accidentally, we discovered that those doctors who work in long-term care have a lower esteem than doctors who work in virtually anywhere else. In other words, working in long-term care can be damaging to your self-esteem and your reputation among your colleagues. Why? It's because we have treated long-term care as a stepchild. It's a second thought in virtually everything. When we uh, set up the uh, information systems incentives back uh, many, many years ago under the Affordable Care Act, long-term care was explicitly excluded. And I say to the leadership in the sector, where were you? Why weren't you at the table with your colleagues behind you, banging a shoe on the table and saying, oh, guys, the meaningful use is meaningless unless it includes long-term care. What are the sources of people? What are the sources of our staff today? And what are the sources tomorrow? Well, this is what it is today. This is from the Kaiser Family Foundation, and we can see that it's a moderately sized uh, labor force, four and a half million. This is where they work and we'll send these slides out afterwards. This is where they work. And I will tell you categorically that they are overwhelmingly women. They are overwhelmingly asset limited, income constrained and employed. In other words, they're on the brink of poverty. And many of them, and we can't even really identify how many of them, but many of them are uh, foreign workers, uh, which is why the home care uh, leadership, to their credit, uh, and others, uh, Leading Age and the American Healthcare Association, spoke up when the current administration threatened to shut off uh, the availability of uh, foreign-born workers to the sector. It's critical that we support, nurture, and protect them. And what about the future? What's plausible? There really are people who want to work in long-term care. We've done tens of thousands of surveys, um, and we know 
that there are people who genuinely want to work in long-term care. They have a specific psychological and behavioral demographic profile. We know that they're there. We need to get to them. Uh, and we need to work together to remove the stigma associated with working in long-term care. And that's that alone could be the subject of a webinar and a, and a vigorous conversation. We need a federal long-term care jobs act. So we currently have roughly 17 to 30 million unemployed. Some portion of that unemployed pool would be very suitably screened and retrained for long-term care, but we need better pay. And that means uh, subsidizing salaries and creating incentives, retention incentives. And this is nothing new. It's been used before, too often with uh, mixed results, but it could work and it would encourage the sector to employ new, different, and frankly, motivated uh, employees to work in the sector. Um, culture. Well, this picture says a lot about the culture in long-term care. And culture, as many of us understand, is a Culture is the unwritten rules that guide behavior. And culture is not sticking a potted plant in the corner of that hallway. Culture is changing the attitudes of the people inside so that it shows on the outside. And uh, famously, uh, if you wanna understand the culture in your organization, Listen to what happens to call bells. If call bells are left ringing, um, there's, I would challenge that you have the right culture in your congregate care center. Uh, among home care workers, culture has to do with loyalty, engagement, and commitment. And there are very good ways to measure these things. And I would encourage us all to look at culture. There are cultural programs, uh, greenhouse, uh, uh, there are very good ones, plain tree, uh, that attempt to address the culture. These are petunias in the onion patch. And while they're certainly worthwhile, I think we need a concerted effort at a change in culture and nothing short of ripping it up and starting over will do. Um, outcomes. So outcomes uh, is extraordinarily important in long-term care. In the United States, these outcomes are very often measured as clinical results. And some of these measures have gotten progressively uh, more sophisticated. The new PDPM uh, reporting requirements are heavily focused on clinical results pretty good, it's a pretty interesting approach to outcomes. However, the myth that quality is somehow measured by these outcomes has to be blown up. We need to start over again. First of all, quality is the degree to which a service is free of defects. I didn't make that up. That's W. Edwards Deming, the father of quality. The QRP program, which is part of the new reporting requirement for CMS, the 
the agency, the regulatory body in the United States. But QRP only has half of the equation. What we're not looking at and what there's no systematic and serious way to look at across the board in the United States is consumer satisfaction. And these are the core questions. Is this what the consumer wants? Is this what they need? And is this what their families want? Until we can really answer that, we can't know what level of quality, because quality is uh, what it, the, the defects in quality, the defects in the service are driven by dissatisfaction among the consumers, not a, not an, a loss of weight or a failure to improve a decubitus. The issue is, are, the, is this, are we giving the consumers and their adult advisors uh, what they want? And if they don't know what they want, if they don't know it, why aren't we teaching them uh, instead of uh, complaining about the lack of Medicaid funding? My prayer is that we can launch a campaign to teach uh, families, to teach the public about uh, long-term care. Finally, economics. So there's direct and indirect costs associated with providing uh, long-term care and Basically, long-term care in the United States has been shortchanged for 30 years. You can't have an entire sector. This is a sector. This isn't a business or, uh, you know, this is a, an entire sector that's been operating at or near the margin uh, so that recently with, the, with what's occurred because of COVID, that have been operating at a loss. The examples of this are clear and powerful. The system has been short changed for 30 years. Medicaid can't afford to pay for the long-term care that its covered beneficiaries require, period, paragraph. And Medicare backed out 30 years ago. They're only paying a pittance. Many think that the government will pay for it. And paradoxically, the, the part, going back up to this one, the part that Medicare does pay for subsidizes the part that Medicaid shortchanges in many cases. So without those Medicare beneficiaries, long-term care providers are going broke. So, and the public thinks that the government will pay for it. This notion persists, which is one of the reasons why long-term care insurance, such as it is, has failed, hasn't exceeded 11 point something percent penetration, because why do I need it? The government's going to pay for it, right? And then there's the almost 500 billion in value in non-paid care that's provided. In other words, this is a superior good, a superior value delivered to this long-term care system free of charge. 500 billion in value delivered by non-paid caregivers. There's waste in the system, maldistribution, lack of collaboration and fragmentation. Co cooperation is hard to come by. Collaboration is extraordinarily difficult to achieve. An assisted living provider client and a home healthcare client of mine, I wanted to put them together and the lawyers said we couldn't because of some fear about stark regulations. Well, those are the realities on the ground and those don't make any sense. Just doesn't make any sense. 
what do we need to get started? Well, we need a federal insurance for long-term care. This is not a new idea. This has been around forever. It's forever. It's at least 30 years. It's always the bridesmaid, never the bride. It's always part of some federal legislation or some federal program that doesn't go forward. For funding, we need a small increase in the Medicare payroll deduction and a small premium with a means testing on users of Part A, Part C, and Part D. That's the Medicare Advantage. Part C is the Medicare Advantage program. That's a profit-laden juggernaut that's rolling up more and more of the market. And I got to tell you, don't worry. All of the people that are participating in Part A, Part C, and Part D, they can afford a small premium. Really, they can do it. And for this, we need to use this to fund private long-term care, uh, the federal long-term care insurance, private long-term care insurance, so a federal-based program and a private long-term care program, fully deductible, and risk pools in each state, and require the long-term care health insurance plans to spend at least one-half of 1% of their premiums on education communications so that the public understands how to access the system, where to access the system, what's the basic level of services that are on offer, what they would get if they topped up to a private long-term care insurance, this can be done. So in conclusion, the current situation is a bloody mess and there's just no reason for it. We need a community, well, there is. We need a community of action and, and effective dialogues and we need to engage the leadership. I, I, I know them, I respect them, and it's time to take off the gloves and step into the ring. The world we've created is a process of our thinking. Long-term care has been a process of our thinking and our defensiveness, we've got to protect this, we've got to protect that. It can't be changed without changing our thinking. And that is, um, that's the program. If you enjoy these podcasts, please subscribe and be sure to tell your friends and colleagues. Thanks for listening.